In 2010, there was an artist named Marina Abrahamovich, and she uh, had an exhibit called The Artist is Present. And in this exhibit, Marina would sit across from somebody in a chair, and you pay a donation, and you come in and you sit across from her, and you could sit there as long as you want. And she would stare into the eyes of the person who would sit across from her, and you would stare into her eyes, and you could stay there for minutes, seconds, hours, all day long if you wanted to. And over the course of three months, Marina, this artist, sat and did this for 750 hours. 1,400 people went through this exhibit to see her, to just sit across from this person and stare and be stared back at. It shows the depth of desire in the human heart for connection. Some people would cry. Some people would just sit. Some people couldn't handle it after a few seconds and would get up and leave. Imagine being able to do that with Jesus. Imagine just sitting across from our King and our Savior and just staring into his eyes and letting him stare back at you. I think we would go to Jesus for strength, which is rightly so we should do that. I think we go to Jesus for healing, rightly so. I think we go to Jesus for encouragement, rightly so. But there is a reason to go to Jesus that stands far above all other reasons. And we see that reason in the text we're going to look at today. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 18 to 29, and we're going to dive into this church in a city called Thyatira. There's a primary reason, above all others, to run to Jesus, and we see it in this letter that Jesus writes to this church. Hopefully, as we're going through these churches, the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, you're seeing how relevant these churches' letters are to us today. We don't make the Bible relevant. The Bible is already relevant, and it stands the test of time. And we see that in all of these letters, and today will be no different. Revelation chapter 2, it opens up in verse 18 with a description of our glorious King, Jesus, and who he is. Look as I read at Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Thus says the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze. God in heaven knows what's happening in his churches on earth. There's this heavenly connection between churches on earth and the living God. And God's attention is drawn to this church in Thyatira And he goes on after he calls their attention to give the title who he is. He says, thus says the Son of God. It's a title that shows he's the Messiah King. And it's interesting because we don't see that designated title in any other letter written to any of the churches in Revelation. 
It could be because this city, Thyatira, was so filled with emperor worship. They worshiped the Roman emperor. And many times the Roman emperor would sign their name with a comma and write, Son of God. It would be like them writing, Emperor Caesar, Son of God, Julius. And maybe God was correcting their thinking and saying, I am the true Son of God. And I stand in a class all by myself. This title shows us something else. He goes on to describe his eyes, which are a blazing fire, which we saw in Revelation 1. It's this symbol that everything is known to God. That the eyes of Jesus see into life in the human soul. He goes on to say that his feet were like bronze, which is a symbol for absolute holiness and purity. So if you think about our opening illustration, sitting across from Jesus and having him look into your eyes, you will see that his eyes pierce through our souls. His eyes know every thought that we have, every intention of our heart, even the things that haven't even come through our mind yet. He knows us, and he knows us as he stands there with absolute holiness and purity, undefiled, seeing into one's heart, mind, and soul. This is a king who is worthy of the worship of the entire world. Jesus is king. Jesus sees all. Jesus is pure. Imagine sitting across from him, staring into his eyes. You'd see tender love, tender mercy, Abiding truth, holiness and power, but also there'd be no hiding because all would be known, thoughts and intentions of the heart. And in this perfect knowledge that Jesus has, he begins to address this church. Look at verse 19. He has a wonderful encouragement to them. He says, I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, your service, and your endurance I know that your last works are greater than your first. The members of this church were strong in love, in faithfulness, in service, and endurance. And if you notice, unlike the church we talked about in Ephesus that started off really, really well and then started to decline, this says that their love actually increased. Their faithfulness increased. Their service and endurance increased. They were doing really, really well. They were getting better and better and better. This was an exciting time to be a part of this church. Love and faith were first on the list of things that marked this church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see the three core values of the Christian faith. Faith, hope, and love. And the first two are right here. If you have a church that is rich in love and faith, it'll no doubt the church will be rich in service and endurance. That word service there means ministry. This was a church that was full of proclaiming the gospel in words and actions, that was seeing the gospel go forward and transform people's lives, that was going into addictive situations, abusive situations, and bringing healing and transformation. It was an amazing time to be a part of this church. 
It was like the gospel was a rock and they would throw it into the surrounding area and just created ripples and ripples and ripples all over wherever it went. They could see gospel impact to the glory of God. But as great as that is, and as great as that was, life in a church is not one-dimensional. It's like a family. There's complexities to it. There's different angles to it. And now Jesus shares with them some difficult words in verses 20 to 25 as a convicting challenge. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time. Verse 20, Jesus picks up and says, But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. This is a convicting challenge to this pretty amazing church. And let's unpack and take a look at what this all means. The main point of the letter to this church is although this church has been growing in Christian love and service and faith and doing these great things and growing in Christian virtue, they were letting something slip. They were tolerating willful, unrepentant, habitual sin, and they were beginning to have it be accepted as normal in the church. They weren't calling it out. The leaders of the church weren't calling it out. They were just kind of compromising and adapting and developing this casual attitude towards willful sin. Jesus says here that what led them to this place was this false teacher who's identified as Jezebel. Now that's unlikely her real name. It was a nickname of sorts. And it was a nickname that connected her to a false prophetess in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. There's this lady Jezebel who was married to the king of Israel at the time named King Ahab. And King Ahab was an evil king. He was a king that did not bring glory to God. In fact, he led the people of Israel away from God into Baal worship and idol worship. And this Phoenician woman he married named Jezebel would come alongside and help him in this. In fact, if there were godly people standing against this, this Jezebel would go and put them to death. And she was perpetrating this false gospel. She was perpetrating this false teaching. And Jesus says, this woman in this church, Thyatira, reminds me awful lot of this woman back in the Old Testament in the days of Elijah named Jezebel. Because she's leading my people astray. 
And to understand what this woman did in this church, Thyatira, to earn that title, Jezebel, I need to teach you some things that was going on. First of all, in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world, the city was broken up into squares. Most all cities in the Roman Empire were broken up into these districts, or they would call them squares. And Thyatira was known for its guilds. And if you're like me, I had no idea what a guild was, so I had to look it up. But a guild is an association of trade or business people. And so you had these associations because Thyatira was known for its great trades. It was known for its bronze making, its wool, its pottery, its leather. They had these people of trades and these businesses. And they would form these associations around that particular business. So if you worked with wool, there was like the White Wool Society, and you had this guild, this association, and you would form this association around what you did. And each square had a guild that represented that square. Each square in town had this association. Now the problem is each guild also had a patron fake god that they would worship. And they'd worship this god with sickening acts. They would gather in the square at the guild where the guild would meet and they'd worship this god with taking a child and perform sexual exploitation with this child. They would do all sorts of sick sexual immorality as worship to these patron gods. Now this made it very difficult for Christians of the time because it was expected that if you wanted to do business and have income, that you participate in the guilds. But many Christians said, we can't do that because of what's going on, and they were soon kicked out of the guilds, and they would have no income. It was a difficult time. But this lady in the church of Thyatira came up with a different plan. This lady known as Jezebel came up with a different plan. She said, hey, if you look at the Bible, and you look at the Old Testament, there were all sorts of false gods. But they weren't real. They were fake gods. So you, Christian, can go to the guild and do these practices because the God that they worship at that guild is fake. The God isn't real. So you could just go along with this and still have an income. After all, you have to have an income, right? The church wouldn't expect you to let your children go without food. And the God at this guild isn't real. It's a false God. So you can go ahead and do that. It's okay. Jezebel, so-called quote-unquote Jezebel, this lady in this church, told the church that the patron gods they worship in the guilds are not real gods. There's only one God, which is true. That part of it is true. So it's okay to participate in these pagan banquets. You see, there's a little bit of truth masked within a bunch of lies. That's the strategy of Satan. Satan doesn't come with us and tell us this flat-out lie that we can quickly dismiss and see is wrong. He comes and he clothes the lie with some truth to get us to bite in. Jesus, is a, his convicting challenge to this church is that holiness and conduct matters. You can't just go with the ways of the world 
and live however you want and call yourself a Christian. Church leaders in Thyatira and church leaders all over can't let willful, habitual sin and behavior that's sinful just go unchecked. There continues to be many Jezebels in the churches today. People who take God's truth and they look at culture and they twist the truth enough to abide to the culture so that they're able to make a buck or experience pleasure or gain power. Or maybe it's even not that strong. There's people that look at the culture and take what God says and blow it off enough just to make life a little easier in this life. After all, wouldn't that be what God would want you to do? God wants us to follow his word regardless of what we experience in this life. And that was the convicting challenge that Jesus was bringing to this church because this church was kind of letting them do whatever they want in the culture they lived in. But I want you to notice something. Even with this false teacher, Jezebel, God is full of mercy and he gives her time to repent. In Revelation 2 verse 21, it says right there, I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. She loves her sin too much. God gave this call to be holy, and he called her to renounce her sin and repent and come to him and receive forgiveness. And her time is almost up, and very likely some leaders of the church, as we're going to see in a little bit, who did not buy into this, confronted her on this issue and said, you need to repent but there was too many people in the church that went with this who loved their sin more than God. That was the issue. They loved their sin more than God. So Jesus starts his progression of judgment. Look at the verses in 22 to 23. You see this progression. It says, look, I will throw her into a sickbed. So first there's illness. And those who commit adultery with her, the ones who follow, they will go into great affliction. So now you go from sickness to suffering. And unless they repent, those who are following of her works, I will strike her children dead. And most commentators I study this week say that that's not referring to her biological children. That's referring to the people who are following her teaching. But you see this progression from illness to great suffering to death. There's a progression of God's judgment. And so this tells us we should repent soon of our sins. The minute we sense conviction. Her advice and teachings tore this church and directed it into a place that did not glorify God. But notice again, even here in the judgment of this time, there's still an opportunity to escape the punishment. This is not the final judgment. There's still time. Look at the end of verse 22. Look, I will throw her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great affliction unless they repent of her works. God is still opening the door to repent and come. 
This is usually always the case of divine judgment in the Bible leading up to the final judgment we're going to see at the end of the book of Revelation. When God brings judgment, there's usually always time to repent in the here and now. And it's been like that through the ages. When we see that back in 586 AD, when the people of Israel were rebelling against God in Jerusalem and the Babylonian army came and took them into exile, even in that place, there was time to repent and get right with God. Grant Osborne, a commentator, says this, divine judgment in this world is redemptive more than it is punitive. Its purpose is to wake people up and bring them back to God. And isn't that what a good father would do to their children who were running into rebellion? This is a wake-up for the people here. All churches need to know the one who searches hearts and minds is alive and well. Look at verse 23, the end of it, it says, Then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to their works. This all-knowing Jesus knows exactly how we feel. He knows exactly what we're thinking. He knows exactly what we're tempted by. And in Jeremiah 17, 10, it says, I, the Lord, examine the mind, I test the heart to give each according to his way. The ways that we live are before our God, and I would say before our God alone. And he is the one who examines the hearts and will find what's true in how we live and how we conduct our lives. And he will reward or judge Nothing is hidden from the gaze of God. Then Jesus addresses those who do not buy into this false teaching in this church. In Thyatira, look at verse 24. I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who haven't known, and this is how he labels this teaching, the so-called secrets of Satan, as they say, I am not putting any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. These were people who did not buy into this teaching that this woman was propagating. And he says, I'm not putting any burden on you. And what he means by that is the burden of walking out the gospel in holiness. See, Jesus knows it's not easy to live in a society that's anti-God and be a Christian. So he says to the faithful in this church that you've given your lives to me. You've come back to God. Now, be empowered by the love and the grace of God to go and live in this place. And I know it's going to be hard. I know to live under that tyranny and that persecution and that pressure is a burden. I'm not going to give you any more burdens other than to live out the gospel as I asked you to live. In verse 25, says they are to persevere until he comes. And this is an exhortation and a warning to all our churches. That our hearts are examined before God. And it's time that we stop rationalizing our cherished sins. The leaders of this church 
should never have tolerated the sin that this lady who Jesus nicknamed Jezebel was propagating. I open this story, or open the sermon with a story about the artist who was present, who was sitting and staring across at people. And we talked about what would that be like to do that with Jesus? To sit across from Jesus and look into his eyes and to receive and find in his eyes love and strength and healing and encouragement. Those are all great things to find in his love. But there is a reason we should go to Jesus that is more priority than any other. There's a reason we should run to him and be with him that's bigger than any of those other reasons I shared according to what we see in this text. And the reason is Jesus Christ is the only place we can go to to receive forgiveness of sin and be cleansed and set free from our sin. We should run to Jesus primarily because he can set us free from our sin which leads to eternal death. But here's the thing. If we want to be free from our sin, it's going to take more than just this sitting, in the, sitting across from Jesus in a 10 or 20 minute interaction. It's going to take a consistent connection that causes us to abide in Jesus Christ. That causes him to be our everything. As we allow ourselves to stay close to Jesus, where he can point out things in our heart and we can quickly repent and he can redeem, then he will graciously lead us into levels of freedom and holiness in our time here on earth. This doesn't mean that Christians walk in this life sinless. This doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. It means they don't love their sin. This doesn't mean Christians don't sin. It means they don't love their sin. In the heart of a Christian that wants to honor Christ, there's this hatred when we fall into sin. There's this mourning, this grief that happens in our hearts. We don't want to be people who love our sin and just go on like it is no big deal. And we develop this casual attitude. We don't want to tolerate our sin. We want to be like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 when he sins and he says, Oh, wretched man am I. Why do I keep doing this? The whole point in going to Jesus and to sit with our Savior is to be with God and be set free from our sin. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it's too easy for me as a follower of Jesus Christ to just go through the busyness of life and say, yeah, if I sin, I can always repent and God will be gracious and he'll forgive me. And while that's true, if that thought sinks deep into my soul, that my life as a follower of Jesus is just one of doing whatever I want and banking on the fact that Jesus will forgive me, that casual, compromised attitude towards sin will lead me in a way of destruction. Because we have to take sin seriously. Sin is not normal for the child of God. 
who's been redeemed and washed and rescued. And to think it is is a deception and a lie. We should have this hatred to war against our sin. We should be broken by our sin. We should mourn over our sin. We should say, God, will you please come in power and change me and set me free from this sin? There's a difference between somebody who's connected to Jesus and hates their sin and is warring against it and occasionally falls and has to be, by God's grace, picked up again and repented and forgiven again and restored and move on. There's a difference between that and willful, habitual, just casual, go do whatever you want as a Christian and God will forgive you. Those are two different things. When we sin, we need to quickly ask forgiveness. Every single one of us in this room has sinned. Every human being has fallen short of God's glory. And God sent his son Jesus to earth to live the perfect life we couldn't, to go to a cross, to become our sin. On the cross, he paid for the penalty of your sin and mine. Because he who is perfect became our sin, absorbed the wrath of God the Father. And he did that so that we can be with God. So that we can be brought back into relationship with God. And when we're brought back into relationship with God, it doesn't mean that from that point on we say, okay, I can live however I want. No, no, no. When we're brought into that relationship with God and we see how amazing he is, how wonderful he is, how incredible he is, and I can't believe I get to be in God's presence, it causes us not to go back to sin, but to war against sin and live in holiness because of who he is. That's the Christian life. Which leads me to a question. I'll get to the question in a second. This goodness of grace, this fact that God forgives us is so wonderful that if you really understand it, you should ask the question, So if this is so great and wonderful, what do we just, let's just keep on sinning and get more of this grace. And the Apostle Paul addressed that in Romans 6 when he said this. What should we say then? Should we continue in and so that, uh, should we continue to sin so that grace can multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin live in it? That was Paul's exhortation to us. You, when you come to Christ, when you come to Jesus, you die to yourself and the grace and the mercy and the gospel of God should never cause us to be comfortable or ignore our sin. It should cause us to make war with it and realize that that's not our destiny. To willfully keep sinning as a Christian, habitually, and to not care is a distortion of grace. People say, well, Dan, stop talking about sin because Jesus died on the cross and we all get grace. And so grace covers all our sin. Yes, that's true. But that's not all grace does. Look at Titus chapter 2, 11. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God saved us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But it instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. See, grace doesn't just ignore sin. Grace leads us to holiness. 
Grace doesn't make sin tolerable. It doesn't make sin comfortable. It doesn't make sin normal. It forgives us when we don't deserve it. But then it leads us into a pathway of holiness, empowered by the grace of God. Because we experience God's grace and we say, grace and love, this amazing, grace and love, this divine, demands my life, my soul, and my all. I can't look at grace like this and just go do whatever I want. It demands all that I have because it's so amazing and so good. That's the gospel. So now I'll ask you a question. Do we understand the sinfulness of our sin? Do we understand the sinfulness of our sin? Not only did I ask you the question, I'll answer for you, no, we don't. None of us truly understand we will one day when we see how holy, how pure, how righteous our God is. And when people have encountered that level of holiness and righteousness, they've fallen on their knees and say things like, I must die because they grabbed and understood the sinfulness of their sin. In this world, there's a pull on us as Christians to tolerate our sins, even compromise our truth, to adapt to that. But God calls us to something else. Adopt this prayer in your heart that says, God, teach me what you think of sin. Let me see sin through your eyes. And God in this church goes on and he calls them to something called gospel living. Look at verse 26 to 29. The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations and the new heavens and the new earth. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. As Christians, we are called to persevere to the end. And if anyone is far from God, they're called to repent and believe and give your life to Jesus Christ. And it says, if you have ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying. I prayed all week that in this moment the Holy Spirit would speak to some of you. I prayed all week the Holy Spirit speak to all of us. Has the Holy Spirit grabbed your attention this morning? Has he awakened us to understand the seriousness of sin? And maybe you realize, like I realized this week, I can get way too comfortable with my sinfulness. Maybe you notice your friends are just sprinkling a little too much worldly wisdom into the life of holiness that God called you to, and you just go along with it. Jesus is calling us to come back. He's calling us to repent and allow him to give marching orders of how we live our life. 
Jesus says this morning, come to me and fall into my arms of grace. Be forgiven of your sin. Be cleansed and be set free. But never, ever, ever be comfortable with your sin. Always be aware of your sin. Bring it to Jesus. Don't ever rationalize it. There's only one place to go as a human being with sin, and that is into the arms of your Savior, Jesus Christ. One theologian gave this analogy. He said, think of an animal that you are really afraid of, whether it's a snake or a spider or an angry rhinoceros. If you come around a corner and find yourself facing it, what would you do? You would run away, of course. Well, as a follower of Jesus, that's exactly how you should feel about a lifestyle of greed, lust, jealousy, injustice, or any other sinful pattern. Then think how you'd feel if you walked around the corner and you saw one of the most favorite people in your heart that exists in all the world. What would you do? You would run after them, of course, and give them an embrace. That's how you should behave when you think of Jesus and the new life he is offering you. There has never been a better time to leave habitual sin and stop hiding from God. To step into his gracious light. To uncover what cannot remain hidden from God. So that Jesus can cover it with his blood and that you may know that you are known by God and forgiven by God. And you may know he is a kind God. He is a holy God. And he is a saving God who wants to be in relationship with us. Run to Jesus. Hate your sin. There's this verse that has become very dear to me in Psalm 139, 23 to 24. And oftentimes I'll open it and I'll just read it. And it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. And I allow a time for God to search my heart. And when sins come to mind that I committed or when things come to mind that I didn't do that I should have, I ask for forgiveness. And this verse has become a doorway to grace for me. A doorway to forgiveness. And maybe he'll do that for you. And I encourage you to take this verse and to think about this question this week. Am I aware of my sins and bringing them to Jesus? Don't go anywhere else with them. Bring them to Jesus to find cleansing, forgiveness, hope, and peace.